Welcome to another episode of the Confessions of a Recovering Landlord podcast, where you'll learn the secrets commercial landlords would prefer you not know. I'm your host, Jan Gibbons, along with my co-host and experienced commercial real estate broker, Bob Gibbons. That's me. Brought to you by Riata Commercial Realty, where we exclusively represent users of office and warehouse properties. Landlords have representation. Do you? Hello to all our podcast listeners. We're tickled to have you back. Maybe not as tickled about the topic today, a little dicey, but we'll get into that. Going to start right off with real estate insights, because basically that's what the show is all about. Aren't they always, isn't it always a dicey uh, topic <laughs> for us? Well, the current state of the office sector, it's opportunities and challenges. Is that broad enough? Am I painting it broad enough there? Um, yeah, probably. Because, I mean, you're right. In every problem, there's an opportunity. So we just got to figure out how to find those, right? Yeah. And who's the opportunity going to be for this time? Um, yeah, good question. To be to be determined. TBD. <laughs> well, the thing I, I thought was most interesting was, of course, we're talking about vacancy in office buildings and specifically in downtown areas. But the numbers, I think, were skewed in my view. I did not realize that the bulk of the vacancies are in a very small number of buildings. And so it makes it look like, oh, my gosh, we've got such high vacancy rate when it's really a selected few. Talk about that. What are they? Why are they selected few? I mean, there's other buildings that are almost 100 percent occupied. Yeah, have I low mean, vacancy rates. And then there's a few that have this skewed number. Yeah, I mean, and these are based on uh, nationwide numbers that JLL uh, came up with. And uh, and they, they claim that 60% of all office vacancy is concentrated in only 10% of the inventory, mm -hmm. which is hard to believe because you're thinking, I'm thinking, wait a minute, if you've got only 10% of the inventory is vacant, or you know the have vacant have the the bulk of the vacancy sixty percent. Does that really work? I mean, if you have ten percent of the buildings have the vacancy for sixty percent of a hundred percent, I don't know if, I'm, <laughs> if this is making sense. But and then you carry just, the two donuts. <laughs> yeah, like you know, eighty percent of the time I'm a hundred percent right. You know, <laughs> I'm just I'm kind of looking at this, and then they say ninety percent of the vacancy is concentrated in thirty percent of the buildings. And so when you when you think about it in those terms, is 30% of the overall U.S. inventory enough to have 90% of the vacancy? Well, those numbers are CBD versus greater Metroplex area. If you oh. drill down on that and get a little more granular, it talked about that. Well, yeah, later it does. But just, I mean, in these, in these big numbers, we're only talking about... Right you know, the, um, the overall market. So I guess what I'm saying is let's just, let's just pretend like you have a, a market that's a hundred million square feet, right? And you have say 12% vacancy. So that's a hundred, uh, that's 12 million square feet vacant, but 10% of a hundred million market is 10 million. So how do you have 20, 12 million square feet of vacancy and, and 10 million square feet? This is where my eyes start to glaze over. So, <laughs> Well, 
Part of the reason is because they say in 10% of the office buildings, but not all, not all office buildings are the same size. And so you may have one office building that is um, almost totally vacant and it's a million square feet. Whereas you have another one that's, you know, 10,000 square feet. So that's where this gets really hard to kind of follow because it's, you know, we don't have access to all of their research and the, you know, all the numbers they've got here. So you, you just kind of have to trust that what they say is accurate because they're, you know, they have research departments that, that handle this. But, um, you know, as an example, just, you know, one of the buildings here in the Dallas area downtown is a 63 story office building called Fountain Place, one of the nicest buildings in downtown Dallas, very iconic um, architecture. And uh, it was built in the 80s. But it has, I think, uh, what do they say, like a million square feet in the building, and 77% of it is vacant. Mm. Now, it's high, it's more highly leased than that, but it's not, you know, it's on the market for sublease and not being occupied. So here you've got a million square foot building with basically 750,000 square feet empty on the market for sublease or direct lease. And, uh, and so it's, it's pretty, I'm sorry, I apologize. It's 755,000 square feet is vacant and available for lease with another 235,000 square feet vacant. So it's basically a million square feet out of a 1.3 million square foot building mm -hmm. that's available. So, well, and it, a lot of times when people go home or hybrid or somewhere else, it creates that vacant feeling and the people that remain don't want to come because they don't have that vibrancy in the building. So I think vacancy leads to more vacancy and maybe the landlord's not keeping it up or providing as many amenities as when it was 80, 90% leased. Well, that's one reason why whenever you walk into a building and especially if it's one of the older um, atrium buildings from the, mm -hmm. you know, the eighties where, you know, it's a, a big cavernous, you know, all the way up to the, mm -hmm. to the sea, uh, to, you know, goes up 12, 20, you know, however many floors and it's a uh, big open. Well, when you walk into the lobby, there's usually all glass. Every space has all glass facing into the, into the, the lobby and the atrium. And so if all those spaces are vacant and the lights are off, it's depressing. It is. And so, you know, landlords in those situations need to be creative. And, you know, one of the things that um, that I used to do back when I was on the landlord side in that situation uh, down in Austin, we, you know, this was back in the late 80s, like 89 and 90, 91. And we had a lot of vacancy in this building. So one of the things we did is we would um, have local artists um, display their their work in those vacant suites. Well, and then we would have uh, even the school district, the Austin independent school district. We contacted their, in, their art department and had a big show where for like six weeks, all the art from the, the kids would be displayed. And then they'd have a big, you know, reception and give, give awards to the kids, that kind of thing. So it was a great way to get people into the building, but it was also a great way to show some life and interest in Did it help space. with leasing spaces? Well, it's that's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I don't really remember a specific um, deal that we got that was that we wouldn't have gotten had it not been for that. Uh, but you but, might have kept people from leaving. Well, it could have been that, Hard but we also that. 
we also were creative in that we had some some ba- basement space, but that was open to the atrium, visible from the atrium, mm-hmm. and we we uh, gave a discount rate to the uh, uh, chamber of commerce. So that also brought a lot of people to the building that wouldn't have all otherwise come to the building. And back then, I mean, when we took over that building, it was probably 30% occupied. And it was the biggest, newest office building in Austin at the time, over 500,000 square feet. And um, and so, yeah, we had to do a lot of creative things to try and get the building leased. Uh, shout out to Ralph Beislein, who was our leasing agent at the time. So anyway, we're kind of getting off subject here, but uh, bottom line is, you know, I I don't disagree with the JLL numbers that um, that they have shown that there's a high concentration of vacancy in a few um, a smaller percentage of the overall buildings, and they also go on to talk about how those buildings are mostly were built in the 1980s and 1990s, and I've actually seen this um, these stats from others that basically all of the vacant new vacant space that has occurred since COVID started has been concentrated in buildings older than 2014. So, you know, the JLL numbers were talking about 1980s and 1990s. The previous things I'd, I heard was that all the absorption, meaning new new occupancy, was in buildings built in 2015 or newer. So, you know, again, depending on how you slice and dice all this, um, really changes how you do it. Um, one further stat on this is that, uh, according to the uh, JLL report, more than half of all new vacancies that have occurred since 2020, um, despite representing only about 40% of the market, but more than half of the vacancy has occurred in those buildings in the 1980s and 1990s. So, Talk a little bit about subleasing the sublease. It seems like uh, this is starting to become a thing. Yeah, there there has been a little chatter about that, and um, I can't remember which which article we were looking at, but there was one that it was talking about how some subleases um, are now on the market for sub sublease, and um, so I think uh, one of the comments of that was here in Dallas at Granite Park in Plano that uh, company uh, I think it's Trintech subleased two floors for 70,000 square feet. And now they have one of those floors on the market for sub sublease. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that is uh, possible. However, um, typically a sublease, whenever you create a sublease, um, it has to be a, it has to be um, consented to by the landlord. So now you have the primary tenant, the subtenant, and now the landlord all have to agree on this arrangement. Well, typically the document that is signed to document the fact that all three parties are in agreement is the consent to sublease, landlord's consent to sublease. So you have the actual sublease, which is signed by the primary tenant and the subtenant, but then you have the consent to sublease, which is signed by the landlord and Sorry. or all three. Cover that up real quick. You had a frozen moment there. I'm not sure what's oh, did going I? on with your feed, but okay. So the three parties are consenting to the original sublease. Go so from what, there. So you have two documents and three parties. Mm-hmm. So the two documents are a sublease, which is signed by the primary tenant and the subtenant, and then you have a consent to sublease document, which is signed by the landlord for sure, and then often the landlord, tenant, and subtenant. And so the sublease consent document usually says, and sometimes the actual sublease itself will say, 
that the subtenant is not allowed to sub right. sublease. So right. once you sublease the space, you're done. You have no right whatsoever to further sublease that space. Now, if the if the subtenant goes away, let's say a sublease is done, the subtenant moves in, and then six months, a year later, they default and move out of the building. Well, now the primary tenant can go sublease to someone else, but it's still just a sublease, not a sub-sublease. And, and so if a, you know this property is now on the sub-sublease market uh, and they find a sub-subtenant, then you have to now have consent by the sub-subtenant, the subtenant, the primary tenant, and the landlord. So now mm-hmm. you got four parties involved. And, and yet the landlord and the primary tenant are not obligated in any way to agree to that in most cases. Mm-hmm. So I've been involved in situations like that, both as the landlord representative and as a tenant representative. And um, back when I was the landlord representative, the primary tenant sublease to a company that was actually in the process of building a new building. But they were going to move into that new building within two years, but there was four years left on the sublease. So they had to do it. You know, the uh, the primary tenant or the landlord was going to approve a sublease for less than the full term. And so two years later, the, the primary, the subtenant moves out into their permanent new home and they try to sublease the building, you know, the space. They find a sub-subtenant, brought it to the landlord. Landlord said, no, we're not going to approve that. The primary tenant was fine with it, but the landlord was not. Uh, why? Because the landlord didn't like the tenant, the, the new sub-subtenant that was going to be occupying the building and knew it was going to not help the value of their building. And also it was a- It's another- not that they didn't like that sub-subtenant. They didn't like the usage they represented, I think is- I think the biggest issue was they they recognized that that sub subtenant's use was also temporary, and there was no chance that that sub subtenant would potentially extend for a longer become term a direct client, become okay. a direct tenant exactly. And ultimately, you know, most landlords want a sub tenant in the space because at least now they have some shot of keeping yeah. that sub tenant. Whereas the primary tenant, they've already moved out; they're they're long gone. Mm-hmm. They're never going to extend that lease. When I was on the land, on the tenant side, we helped a client sublease a space. We actually had this happen twice at the same time in different buildings. One was downtown Dallas in the West End, and one was out in the DFW Freeport near the airport. And in both cases, um, in, in the first case downtown, we represented the primary tenant that subleased. And then that tenant decided not to occupy the space, and then they found a sub-sublease. And we were fine with that. You know, the, the primary tenant was fine with that. The landlord was fine with that. Sadly, the sub subtenant, you know, decided to go somewhere else. And even though we had everything in agreement, it just, it never happened. The other one in, um, in the DFW Freeport, the, the landlord was fine with it. And the primary tenant was not fine with it. So my client was the subtenant. So they decided they didn't need the space after all. So we found a sub-subtenant. So now we have the four parties, primary landlord. I mean, landlord was fine with it. Subtenant's fine with it. Sub-subtenant's fine with it. But the primary tenant said, no, we're, we're not going to approve that. And why? Eh, they just didn't feel like it. Yeah. They really so, never gave, gave us a reason. 
So basically, if there's a sub-sub-lease on the market, most people are not going to go for that as their first option because there's so many parties to the contract that have to be convinced this is a good idea. And it's going to delay negotiations. And normally, from what I've seen, a subtenant is usually in a hurry. I need the space. I need it yesterday. I need it finished out. Yeah, leave your furniture. Just walk. So having those extra negotiations, I would think, would put a damper on a sub-sublease. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right. Um, there, the more people in a deal, the more ways there are for things to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And the longer things take, the more things that can come up that will kill it. I mean, the number of ways that deals have died just boggles the <laughs> mind. And uh, and every time I talk to you know other tenant reps, you know, around the country, around the world. Uh, and we compare notes, you know, it just, you're, you're left just shaking your head as I just mm-hmm. can't believe that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, if I'm representing a tenant who's looking for space, we definitely will consider sublease, um, you know, if we can find sublease space that will work. Um, but if I know that it's a sub sublease, now I'm going to be a lot more cautious mm-hmm. and try to make sure everybody's on board long before we get too married to that idea of yeah. being in that space. Cause now you've probably also had to further discount it. So one of the other things about all this is that, you know, in this discussion of subleasing the sublease, you know, to, to sublease a space often, at least in the Dallas Fort Worth area for office space, you have to discount the, the rent from what the landlord would otherwise be able to uh, lease the building for. Mm-hmm. You got to discount that from, you know, 15 to 20%, maybe even 30 or more, depend, you know, especially as you get closer to the expiration of that sublease mm-hmm. when there's less time. Well, now you add a sub sublease in there. So now it's probably being discounted even further. So now instead of a 15 to 30% discount, you may be talking a 30 to 50, 60% discount. And, uh, and so it's really attractive to the sub sub tenant, but you don't want to get too far down that road and not know that it's really going to be something that, that you can right. get done. Viable option. Yeah. That is a viable option. Exactly. So with the declining values of property downtown due to age, due to lack of vacancy, due to economic indicators, is this a good time to go out and buy me a 73-story office building in downtown Dallas? Well, I wouldn't say just downtown. Um, you know, I, I think it's also in uh, pretty much anywhere, but you're right. I mean, in most places, downtowns are the ones that are suffering the most. Um, so that kind of depends on how you look at it. I mean, you know, today, is there a good deal out there? Some people think so. Uh, we have a client in the is downtown Dallas, and they've been there for, boy, I don't even know how long, um, off the top of my head, maybe 15, 20 years. I thought 94 was when the original lease was written. C- could be. Anyway, the prior we, owner. we've been trying to, uh, we, we expanded their corporate office, but we also were trying to, and we extended their lease, and then we also tried to extend their lease for their, it's a medical uh medical client. And uh, so they have a clinic in the same building and we've been trying to get that lease extended as well. And, um, but the, a potential buyer of that building didn't like where that clinic was located. They had kind of a different idea for how they were going to 
reamenitize the building. They have you know big plans for how they're going to really uh, step that building up in uh, in the amenities. So all that kind of sounds good, but it wasn't great for my client because you know we couldn't get the the lease signed on that deal. Well, now that building has sold finally to that buyer. It took. I mean, they were under contract for a long time. I didn't know that. I thought the deal fell out. It did, and it's now closed. So we can talk more about that offline, but yeah. Um, in, any, in any case, the things um, I learn on our podcast. <laughs> there's a little something for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, um, oh, so you were talking about values. So obviously that, that owner finally, uh, came to a value that not only was palatable to them, but also to their lenders. And oh, uh, I was going to say you know, the lending was what the problem was. I thought, well, uh, perhaps, finance. I mean, I'm not, I don't really know. I mean, you know, we're on a podcast, you know, anything I know is hearsay on that deal. So I can't really speak to the the actual terms of that deal or what the reasons were for why it took so long. But given the lending environment uh, over the time that that was under contract, uh, given that the interest rates went up practically every month for 10 months, um, would lead you to believe that lending and getting a loan was a major issue in making that deal work and every other deal out there. So Values have, yeah, but I've got cash to to spend. So, okay. so I can so if pay you, cash. Does that make you, a difference? If you've got cash to spend, uh, is there a good deal out there? I would say maybe, but <laughs> the, the problem is, um, in many cases, the the landlords and the lenders are not yet ready to realize the losses they would have to lose. They would have to incur to actually trade a property. So, you know, if let's say, you know, if a, if a landlord has a building and they, um, they paid say $70 million for it, are they going to be willing to sell it for 50 today? Now, some have in other parts of the country, I haven't seen that happen in Dallas yet, but maybe it's happening. I just don't know about it, but it has happened in other parts of the country. So some landlords have sold buildings at a big loss. Uh, I've, I've read about a couple of those in New York recently. In other cases, then the let's say the landlord the uh, the the loan is expiring, and now the landlord is kind of forced to either refinance and bring a lot of money to the table to buy down the loan to value ratio, because now your value has fallen and um, and therefore you can't get as much. You know, if you're going to get an eighty, well, you can't get an eighty percent mortgage, but let's say you can get a sixty percent mortgage. And you paid seventy million dollars for the building is now worth fifty. Well, sixty percent of fifty is a whole lot less than sixty percent of seventy. Therefore, you have to come with cash to um, to get a uh, a refi. Uh, so yeah, in that case, that landlord now has to decide: Am I willing to throw more money at it, or am I going to just hand the keys back to the lender? And the lender has to be sitting there thinking: Do I want that asset on my books? And once I get it, am I going to be able to sell it and get it off as fast as possible? So all these parties are having these same thoughts and, and uh, discussions at the same time and trying to figure out how to how to make that happen. So, you know, you're you're a, a buyer and you've created a fund. We call them a vulture fund and you've or an opportunity fund. You know, if you have that money and I I, I see these announcements all the time mm -hmm. uh, of all these funds that have been created to go out and buy this kind of asset. 
So if you get lucky and you find a building where the lender is not willing to pay the extra uh, equity down and the buy, the uh, the lender is willing to take the building back, maybe that's an opportunity. And maybe if the loan is low enough, maybe you can buy it from the, the landlord before they actually turn the keys back over to the lender. But good luck finding that. I mean, there are lots of people out there looking for that right now at the same time, and that's going to be a difficult find. What if I approach the bank and say, I'll take it off your hands, but I'm converting the usage. It's no longer be an office building. It'll be high-end luxury condos. Or will that sell better to the bank than trying to rehab an office building? Um. You know, I, I don't I don't really know that much about anything other than office and industrial. Um, so, if you know, if you're talking about conversions, everything I hear about converting a building, an office building to a hotel or residential uh, apartments or condos is that it's extremely expensive to do that. And you basically have to write the building down to a zero value because the cost to convert is going to be so high that you can't make it work if you buy the building and then have to pay all the conversion costs. If it's already another kind of building in the first place, then, you know, it's a different calculus. And I, I just, I'm not knowledgeable enough of, on those other asset classes to really know the answer to that. But your question does raise an interesting question, which is what is the best investment out there if you want to play in the office market? And um, according to, uh, David Rubenstein, who is the chairman of uh, co-chairman of the Carlisle Group, big big investor, um, you know, he was uh, uh, quoted recently in an article uh, saying that the single best investment that he knows of today is going out and buying the debt from the lenders for downtown office buildings. So, you know, some bank or life insurance company or commercial mortgage-backed security has a loan on a building for, you know, $50 million. You go in there and buy that loan for $30 million, $40 million. Well, if the asset is worth 70 and it had a $50 million loan and you're now coming in and buying the debt at 30 to 40, you're betting that that lender, I mean, that uh, that landlord is not going to be able to pay to, or to is not going to be able to refi the, uh, the loan. And now you've effectively, by foreclosing on that loan, you've effectively bought the building for 30 or $40 million. Well, and the original lender would discount it to that extent? Well, I mean, if they, if they're looking at what's going on in the industry and they're seeing, you know, little demand for office space, and they're seeing, um, you know, values falling. Well, you know, they don't want that stuff on their books. So what are they going to do? Foreclose it, go through all that hassle and expense, and then um, go through the, the issue of foreclosing it, having it on their books. Now they got to figure out how to manage it. Who are they going to hire to manage it and lease it? Are they going to put money in to tenant improvements and, mm-hmm. and uh, commissions? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, they may better, may be better off discounting the note and getting it away from them before they ever have to touch it or do anything with it than to go through all of that. And do you, you know, think you're going to see a lot of that, especially in this area? 
you know, again, that's a good question. I mean, um, there's a company called Capital Economics that has projected a 35% decline in values nationwide uh, by the end of 2025 for office buildings. So, and and they also further went to say um, they they don't see a likely recovery until 2040. So, you know, if you're believing those kinds of- What number was that again? 2040? Well, a 30, 35% decline by the end of 25 and no significant um, recovery of values until 2040. So 15 year malaise. So if you're if you're a lender and you believe those numbers, then yeah, why not? I mean, so so we'll we'll go back to our example. So a seventy million dollar deal that just lost thirty five percent of the value is now worth forty five million dollars. And if you can only get a sixty percent loan on that. That's twenty-seven million dollars. If you had a if you'd bought that building at seventy million dollars and you'd gotten a seventy percent loan previously, that's forty-nine million dollars. So now your loan's higher than the value of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So you know that's why when you start looking at these numbers, it's really a matter of who who gets scared the fastest and how far are they willing to to drop the numbers to to get it off their books and not deal with it. Um, I was actually on LinkedIn today, and one of our friends at Crux Workplace, uh, David George, who we had as a guest on the podcast mm -hmm. a while back, he just posted a survey that his firm did interviewing uh, users of office space and asking them the question, um, are you going to be reducing your space? If so, by how much? And Or are you going to take more space? And in their numbers, he says that their survey shows that 51% of the respondents said they're going to reduce their office space by more than 20%. And 14% uh, are planning to reduce their office space by less than 20%. So that's 65% of the respondents are reducing their office space to, by some extent. And, uh, and that leaves the rest as maybe expanding or staying the same. So again, you you throw those kinds of things out there, and it it's not looking rosy for com for buildings that are older than 2015 or the 1980s, 1990s. Mm. But even then, it's not a one size fits all. I mean, yeah. if it's a 1980s or 1990s building that has been maintained well, has been renovated, has great access to walkable amenities and transportation those buildings are going to do a lot better than something sitting out in the, in an island somewhere. And, uh, and that's why whenever you look at the Plaza of the Americas in downtown Dallas, well, it's a mixed use development. It's got two office towers. It's got a lot of retail or the capacity for a lot of retail. It's got a hotel and it sits right on the dart light rail line with a stop immediately outside their front door. So if you're a big company that is thinking about relocating to Dallas and you need a big block of space or, you know, you don't need a big block of space, you need 20,000 feet. That's not a bad place to consider if, uh, you know, if it fits with your needs. Plus, you can lease that for a heck of a lot less than going to one of these brand new high rise um, trophy buildings in Uptown where you're going to spend $70 a square foot all in versus America's, which is currently quoting 23 to 25 all in. I think what you meant to say was if they need 20,000 square feet, they call me and <laughs> I will find them the best deal, which may 
or may not be the Plaza of the Americas. So. I like to leave a little something to the imagination. Hopefully no, I don't. No, come to mama. <laughs> <laughs> well, to all our listeners, thank you so much again for your time. We love disseminating this information, even though sometimes it's painful. We think uh, market um, intel is always appropriate. Can I um, can I interrupt your little summation there real quick? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, if you'll go ahead and sign off. <laughs> well, a friend of mine also sent me a, um, a list of the big deals in the market um, today. And so it it is interesting to see the big deals in the market and what constitutes a big deal. So big deals in the market, a lot of people think, oh, you know, that's hundreds of thousands of square feet of mm -hmm. space, right? Well, on this big deal list, there's one deal that is supposedly 350,000 to 500,000 square feet that is looking for space in Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, there's another deal that's like 175,000, uh, another deal for 100,000. And then there's a couple in the... 75, 80,000 square foot range. And then it drops down to 50, 30, 20 in a hurry. So, you know, looking at the, the big deals list, you know, first of all, a, a lot of these are existing companies that are already in the Dallas Fort Worth area. So this would not be any net new um, right. space lease. Um, now, some of them are, um, but um, it's, it's a little hard to say because some of these are undisclosed. Is this and, all office or is this industrial as well? Yeah, this is no, this is all office. This is the okay. office big deals list. And uh, so it's interesting, but um, you know, when you look at a big deals list like this, it's one thing that's hard to really determine is, is that going to result in any net new absorption, you know, mm -hmm. more office space lease than what was before. Right. Uh, because some of these will be a, a, an increase. Some of these are a reduction. Some of these are coming from outside the market. And some of these aren't going to be expiring for another two or three years. So even though they're in the market, they're in the market now looking, um, this won't have a direct impact for a few years. Now, now we can say goodbye. Sign off. No, you get to sign off now. <laughs> I already did the cute little right. sign off. Well, you did do it. You, you do everything cute. So uh, <laughs> okay. thanks for listening and we will catch you on the next episode. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. And just a reminder to send in questions to see if we can stump Bob. Not going to happen. We really appreciate your taking the time to tune into this episode. We would love it if you would give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And if you are on our YouTube channel, we would love to read your feedback in the comment section. Also, be sure to subscribe so you get notified when we publish new episodes. Thanks and see you next time. Bye.